0: TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Howard Zinn, The Occupation of the United States, Part 2 of 2. TUC Radio Archives. We're joining independent media across the country in the fall of 2022 for a celebration of the 100th birthday of this great historian. Here's the TUC radio recording from 2006. This is the second part of a one-hour talk by the historian Howard Zinn. In his 2006 speech, he began to talk about occupation, not of Iraq, the issue of the day, but about the occupation of the United States. Zinn said that a small group of men and occasional women have taken over the country. They managed to get into the presidency with help of Republicans in Florida and a Republican Supreme Court and took us into two wars. Zen answers the questions, how did it happen? And why do we put up with it? We are supposed to be a democracy. You are about to hear Zen talk about U.S. exceptionalism the myth of the U.S. being number one, and the various forms of patriotism that cloud people's views and perception. Howard Zinn.
1: There's another reason for our being deceived, not being ready to be skeptical of what we're told by the authorities, and that is we all grow up in this country Believing that this is the greatest, this is the best. We are number one. Uh, we are the epitome of liberty and democracy. I realize even if I say this that uh, I'm treading on dangerous ground. This is, this is sacred, this is holy. You're not supposed to challenge that idea that we are the best and we are the greatest, and and we, you know, it starts. That idea starts way back in the colonial period of American history, when the when the pilgrims, when first the Massachusetts Bay Colony is established, and the first governor, uh, John Winthrop, talks about, "Oh, we are the city on the hill," and that was the idea. We uh, somehow providence shines upon us. In the 1840s, this was called Manifest Destiny, and it was put that way by by the man who coined the phrase Manifest Destiny, a newspaper editor who said, you know, that somehow Providence uh, has given the United States the right to move across the continent and take uh, whatever we can. And this same idea has pervaded the American ideology for a very long time, that somehow we are, we are specially endowed. In, in the social sciences the phrase that's used to describe this is American exceptionalism. We, we are different, we are better. Uh, and even today when, when they're talking about the other empires, the British and the, and the German and the Belgian and the Dutch empires, they say, well, you say, well yes, there is an American empire, but it's different. It's uh, one of them used the phrase "Empire light." <laughs> uh, well, uh, tell that to the Filipinos. <laughs> tell it to the people of Latin America, and tell it now, you know, to the, to the people uh, of the Middle East. And uh, this idea that, that somehow, from the very beginning, we, we learn as we pledge allegiance, you know I mean, you, you barely uh, have learned to read and. and and you go to school and, and you pledge allegiance and, you, and you know, liberty and justice for all and uh, you sing the Star Spangled Banner and uh, uh, go to a ball game and it's God Bless America and uh, why us? <laughs> why is God blessing us? <laughs> why is God taking time out of a very busy schedule <laughs> to lavish his or her attention on us. But we, we go through all those motions of pledges and anthems and songs and so on and, and it all builds up this idea you know, that we are, are special. Well, we are special in many ways. There's no question about that. We're unique in many ways and there are many w- wonderful things that can be said about, about all of what the United States has in the talents of its people and its culture and, and our material wealth, or at least some people's material wealth or many people's material wealth, not everybody's material wealth. You know, there are things that can be said, yes, and, but the idea that, that we stand morally ahead of everybody else this is an idea that's perpetuated by by all of our political leaders. It doesn't matter whether they're Republicans or Democrats, you know, liberals or conservatives. See, uh, and again, again, you have the theme of uh, somehow providence, God uh, is on our side. Isn't there a Dylan song about that, with God on our side? If you haven't listened to it recently, try it. Uh, a journalist in Haaretz, which is an Israeli newspaper, who had spoken to a Palestinian leader, the Palestinian leader said that he had met with Bush, and Bush told him, "A God told me to strike at Al Qaeda, and I struck them. And then he instructed me to strike at Saddam, and which I did. And now I'm determined to solve the problem in the Middle East." And uh, well, that's interesting. I didn't know. That that's where he got the idea, uh, and maybe this is a more who knows. Maybe that he didn't really say that. Who knows? You get these things second hand, third hand. But it sounds right. <laughs> it it sounds like him. It's just the thing, kind of thing he would say. Uh, well, this is probably more likely report by the by the president of the. Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention and he says that Bush told him during the presidential campaign I believe God wants me to be president uh, I, I would call that electioneering I believe God wants me to be president but if that doesn't happen that's okay it was generous uh, Bush to forgive God uh, if he didn't get elected, you know. Uh, but as I say, it's it's you know it's not just Bush, and it's very easy to get into a, a rage uh, given this present situation about Bush. But the fact is, Bush is carrying on a long tradition. He may be carrying it on more brutally than almost anybody else, but it, there is a long tradition of going into other countries and on the supposition that you, know, you have a special dispensation uh, to do this. And uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans have have done it. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, well, Wilson, here's Wilson tells a graduating ship midshipman in 1914 at a naval academy that the, our navy and army are the instruments of civilization, not the instruments of aggression. The idea of America is to serve humanity. Uh, you are not on an errand of conquest, but an errand of service. Well, and then just to bring it down to the present. Clinton, again, speaking in 1992 at the West Point Commencement, uh, the values you learned here will be able to spread throughout the country and throughout the world. Uh, the idea of American exceptionalism you know, is something that, that's very deeply ingrained in American history and perpetuated uh, by the leaders of our country. And it doesn't take much history to begin to question that, to, to question the idea that that just yes, we are the, the beacon, we are the city on the hill, we are the beacon of liberty and progress. And, and, and you find people saying, well, sure we have our faults uh, like, you know, slavery. Uh, <laughs> no, we, we have our problems. But we, we solve them, we settle them. Well, It took 200 years, 200 years of slavery before slavery was done away with, or half done away with in this country, because even after the Civil War, uh, racial segregation and lynching and humiliation and economic servitude persisted for another 100 years for black people in this country. That's not something you can simply put aside and say, well, we're the greatest country in the world, but we have our little problems. No. Our history, unfortunately, has been a history of marauding first across the continent and then into the Caribbean and then across into the Pacific and now in, into the Middle East. And when you look even at the indices of uh, greatness in what we are supposed to be best at, and that is our, our economic miracle, the, the capitalist miracle which the United States uh, is at the summit of in, in the world. Even when you look at that, it's uh, uh, not a very promising picture. I mean, here's the richest country in the world with 40 million people without health insurance, the richest country in the world where one out of five kids grow up in poverty. And uh, the highest rate of incarceration of any country in the world. Something uh, Something doesn't quite fit the picture of a prosperous, successful, capitalist America. You look at the figures given by the World Health Organization on infant mortality, or look at the figures on, on literacy rates, and you see we're, we're, you know, like number 25 on the list of industrialized countries in infant mortality. There are 24 countries ahead of us who have better rates of infant mortality than we do many countries that have better literacy rates uh, than we do here in the United States. Uh, We spend twice as much as any other country per capita on medical care and yet our medical care is not as good as medical care in other countries in the world. So it's time that uh, we're honest about ourselves. Don't alcoholics have a group where they get up and they are honest about themselves? I mean, right? Alcoholics Anonymous, right? And some of you may, you know, have had that experience. And, uh, but I, yeah, I, know, I know that that's, that's what's done. And that honesty is very refreshing. It would be good if we, we could have an organization, Imperialists Anonymous, where, where they, you know, the, the leaders, the leaders of the country would get up, you know, before the uh, microphones on national television and, and be honest about what, what they have done in the world. You know, you know I think that the, the myth of American exceptionalism, of, of our being the greatest, is uh, not something that's easily accepted by people of color in this country. I mean, they know better than anyone else what reality they have faced. If you look at the figures on support of American wars, you would always find that the greatest opposition to America's wars has always been among black people, African Americans in this country. I mean, and it's understandable too, you know. uh, Are they gonna be told again and again that they're fighting for liberty and democracy and equality? Uh, There's a poem by Langston Hughes, the great black writer of the Harlem Renaissance, which I happen to have with me. and it's addressed to this idea of, of America, which he calls Columbia. Uh, Columbia, my dear girl, you really haven't been a virgin so long. It's ludicrous to keep up the pretext. You're terribly involved in world assignations and everybody knows it. You've slept with all the big powers and military uniforms. And you've taken the sweet life of all the little brown fellows in loincloths and cotton trousers. When they've resisted, you've yelled rape. Being one of the world's big vampires, why don't you come on out and say so? Like Japan and England and France and all the other nymphomaniacs of power." Well, but when you talk this way, you talk the way Langston Hughes does. When you, say, no, you know, we, we are not the greatest. Let's look honestly and clearly at ourselves if we are going to be a good society, if we want to change things, if we want to deserve the praise that we heap upon ourselves as you know, representing sort of the best values in, in civilization. When you start outlining our history in a way that's so, so troubling, uh, what happens? People call you unpatriotic. You know, people say, oh, you're anti-American. Uh, how many times have I, I, don't know how many times you've heard it. Uh, it's hard to live in America without, if you've had a good thought in your head, without being called anti-American, you say. And certainly, I've, I've had it thrown at me uh, after I go through a recitation of the things that we've done in the world and to our own people. And... Uh, and idea, yes, you're, you're anti-American, you're unpatriotic. This is something we, we need to think about very carefully because we have to think about what patriotism is. And, and that's where what I spoke about earlier about the, the difference in interest, difference between the country and the government. Patriotism does not mean support of whatever your government does. The Declaration of Independence makes this clear the Declaration of Independence is our sort of primary philosophical document about democracy. The American Declaration of Independence says governments are artificial creations. They are set up by the people to ensure certain rights, the equal right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And when governments become destructive of these ends, the Declaration says, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish the government. Well, that's, you know. That's pretty strong language, so strong that uh, the Declaration of Independence is not a legal document. <laughs> you know, the Constitution is a legal document, the Declaration of Independence is not a legal document. The Declaration of Independence is something you put on the, on the wall of the classroom, but that's all. When during the Vietnam War there was an army lieutenant who uh, posted the Declaration of Independence on his barracks wall, he was told to take it off. Uh, patriotism is not support of the government. support of the country support of the principles that the, the government is supposed to follow. You know, I mean, who is, who is the, the patriot? Is it Theodore Roosevelt or is it Mark Twain? No, who is, who is the patriot? Is it uh, John F. Kennedy, or is it uh, the Mississippi sharecropper Fannie Lou Hamer? We have to think, think about. Uh, patriotism, and think too about a larger patriotism, as larger than the nation. Uh, we hear a lot about globalization, and and everybody sort of says, well, you know, we're now one world; we're all closer together, and there's all this, uh, you know, going back and forth and uh, interchange of cultures and so on, and uh, they pass free trade agreements which uh, allow corporations uh, to really act as if there are no national boundaries. So corporations can move wherever they want and search for the lowest paid workers and the worst possible economic conditions so that they can make the most profit. That is globalization, but it doesn't apply to human beings. Uh, Corporations can move freely across borders, but human beings cannot move freely across borders. And we build this wall, right, (laughs) 700-mile wall along the southern border of California and Arizona to keep the Mexicans from coming into the land that was stolen from them in the Mexican War, Uh, you know. I mean, the Statue of Liberty, if, if she were flexible enough, would hang her head in shame. <laughs> Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside a golden door. Nobody is quoting that in Congress when they talk about building this wall and keeping other people out. Uh, we have to think about it as one world. We have to think about a world without passports and without visas and without immigration quotas, a world where people can move freely across this this earth in the way that we're so proud we created in this country uh, a United States where people could move from one state to another uh, without such barriers. if we began to think of of people in other parts of the world as being our brothers and sisters, our children, well, then we could not make war. Because then we'd be making war against our own children, against our own brothers and sisters. That, that's a big psychological jump to make, but it's a very important jump to make uh, for all of us to begin to think of, the human, of humankind you know, as one. Now, as I say, we, we then could not make war. I think of the fact that we are we are now engaged in what is called a war on terrorism. And it doesn't take much thought to realize that that is a contradiction in terms. You can't make war on terrorism. For one thing, war is terrorism. And you know, so you know, In war, you terrorize people. And the terrorism of governments has a far, far greater possibility of doing damage than the work of this band of terrorists or that band of terrorists. I mean, Al-Qaeda could, or whoever it was, could kill 3,000 people in Twin Towers. The United States can kill 100,000 people in Iraq. And that's not called terrorism. So we have to really think seriously about this uh, war on terrorism, which is really a war on other people, and a war on our own liberties, and a war on uh, our own uh, resources. And think about what are the roots of terrorism. I mean, if I mean, what did Bush do after? uh, And sometimes this question is, is asked me. Well, what would you do after? You, you, you've been attacked on 9/11, and 3,000 of your citizens have died. What would you do? Well, I know what I wouldn't do. <laughs> I wouldn't immediately pick out a country, you know, that may be harboring terrorists, like 30 other countries, you see, and bomb that country and invade that country and drive hundreds of thousands of its people out of their homes and kill more civilians in that country then died in the Twin Towers, and say, we're making war on terrorism. I know that's what I wouldn't do. No, I would think about uh, what is behind terrorism. I guess that would be asking too much for after 9-11, for Bush and Cheney others to sit down and say, now let's take an intelligent look <laughs> at <laughs> terrorism. Uh, well, you know, And let's look at the history of terrorism if they looked at the history of terrorism they would they would learn something they would learn that terrorism is not simply the the mad it's fanaticism you know any time you kill innocent people is a, a fanat, powerful and immoral fanatic element but it's not simply insanity it comes out of deep grievances that huge numbers of people feel And out of those huge numbers of people, a small number will feel it so deeply, so intensely, that they will commit violent acts, they will engage in terrorism. And if you want to do something about that, then what you'd better do is think about what it is that enrages all of these people and it creates the reservoir of hate that leads a few of them uh, to commit terrorist acts. It's interesting, if you look at the, the report of the... Uh, committee that was set up, the official committee that was set up to investigate 9-11, they actually, in part of their report, they say, no, the the, the terrorists of 9-11 were not really motivated primarily uh, by religion. It's interesting because, you know, the whole culture, our whole culture and the presidents uh, and so on, all full of this, well, it's, you know, Muslim fanatics and Et cetera, et cetera, and, and the clash of civilizations and Western civilization and Muslim civilization and so on. And no, the, the report, this official report, points to what seems to be motivating them is our foreign policy. That is buried somewhere in the report. At one point, there was an op ed piece in the, in the Times where the authors of the report list sort of eight things that we could do about terrorism. One, two, three, four—you know—have to do with, you know, checking uh, people's uh, cuticle scissors and things like that, and and then number eight, sort of, uh, sort of buried in this list, number eight is re-examine our foreign policy, you know. So I think if we are if we are going to be human beings in a larger sense, if we're going to, going to be patriotic in a sense of wanting equality and and the right to happiness for everybody on earth. And we, we have to decide that war cannot be tolerated, that war cannot be accepted as a way of solving any of the problems of the world. Yes, we have to bring democracy alive today to stop the war, to take the wealth of this country away from the super rich and from the military corporations and use it to make a a decent society for us and to help people in in other parts of the world. And and it starts with very small things. I mean, these are huge jobs, but huge changes come as a result of large numbers of people doing very small things and doing them again and again and again and persisting and persisting and persisting until something begins to happen. I want to close by reading a poem by Marge Piercy. Some of you may know the writing of Marge Piercy, wonderful poet. This is from her book, The Moon is Always Female. What can they do to you, whatever they want? They can set you up. They can beat you. They can break your fingers. They can burn your brain with electricity, blur you with drugs till you can't walk, can't remember. They can take your child, wall up your lover, they can do anything you can't stop them from doing. How can you stop them? Alone, you can fight, you can refuse, you can take what revenge you can, but they roll over you. But two people fighting back to back can cut through a mob, a snake dancing file can break a cordon and an army can meet an army. Two people can keep each other sane, can give support, conviction, love, massage, hope, sex. Three people are a delegation, a committee, a wedge. With four, you can play bridge and start an organization. And with six, you can rent the whole house, eat pie for dinner with no seconds, and hold a fundraising party. A dozen make a demonstration. A hundred fill a hall. A thousand have solidarity and your own newsletter. 10,000 power in your own paper, a 100,000 your own media, 10 million your own country. It goes on one at a time. It starts when you care to act. It starts when you do it again after they said no. It starts when you say we oui and know who you mean. And each day you mean one more.
0: That was the last part of a one-hour speech by Professor Howard Zen. Zinn spoke on October 17, 2006, for No War, the Northwestern University Peace Project. Thanks to Dale Lehman at WZRD for this recording. Howard Zinn was a historian, author, professor, playwright, and activist. He taught political science at Boston University and wrote more than 20 books including his best-selling and influential A People's History of the United States. And that was my contribution to the independent media celebration of the 100th anniversary of Howard Zinn's birthday in the fall of 2022, first broadcast on TUC Radio in 2006. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, www.tucradio.org. There you can also subscribe to weekly free podcasts. My name is Maria Gelauden. Thank you for listening.